0: Hi, this is Ben Zorns of Ellersley Mission Society. Billions of dollars are spent each year trying to convince women that beauty is all in appearance. And the Christian community emphasizes that it's what's on the inside that counts. God sees you as beautiful inside, which is a subtle lie of the enemy. The only beauty any of us ever have is that of the indwelling Christ upon the throne of our lives, and we simply acquiescing to His rule, which is for our good. That's what this message entitled Feminine Beauty is all about. Please contact us at www.elersa.com. Now, here's Pastor Eric Ludi. Uh,
1: this is a very unique message that I'm about to whip out. And the way it's going to start might seem a little rocky uh, because it's about the feminine stuff. Now, most of you that have hung around me have heard me talk about the importance of bringing the manly stuff back to Christianity. And ironically, in bringing the feminine stuff to Christianity, You need the manly stuff to do it. This is, you have to be considered stupid in this world to start talking about some of the things I'm going to start talking about here. Okay? This is just not wise for any man to bring up. Okay? I don't know if you can follow the trajectory of this. And by the way, this is going to be somewhat misleading to you because what you're going to think I'm going to be talking about isn't what I'm actually going to be talking about. However, I want you to stir in your seat and get a little uncomfortable uh, in the beginning because I like to do that, uh, I guess. With a title like that, how could you squirm in your seat? Look at that title. Isn't that a good one? Feminine Beauty. The first thing I want to begin to build on is this concept of the governess. When Leslie and I are talking about what has become a forbidden topic in and amongst uh, our culture and in and amongst even Christians is roles in marriage. Who wants to talk about that? We don't have... Roles, do we? You know, if you don't have roles in marriage, your family and your house is a completely disordered mess. You know that there's certain roles that we have. Now, there's roles that are spiritual, and there's roles that are practical. For instance, guess who cleans the dishes Uh, when the family gets done eating, and I'm there. You know, I get up and I clean dishes. Well, it doesn't say in the Bible that Eric is supposed to clean dishes, so that's a practical role in our family. Okay, and there's things that Leslie does. I actually. Have very little, if anything, to do with the laundry. Whenever I get asked to put a load in, I'm always like, I have no idea what to do. And it's like this new contraption, it's like this modern uh, dish or uh, laundry machine. What do you call those things, washing machines? You know, I'm like, how do you get the soap in here? Am I supposed to throw it in? Am I, you know, because it's one of those front load things. It's like, how does this work? I grew up, you know, where you just dumped in stuff from the top. And so it's very confusing. Uh, But we have practical roles, and then we have spiritual roles. Okay, well, when it comes to how we function in our home, it's funny because Leslie serves me in my global role. And I'm like the one that's supposed to stand at the gate and to represent the truth of Jesus Christ in this culture to protect the home. And there's a role that I have. And she serves that. However, she has a role and I serve that. And she's the governess of our home. That's the, that's the term we've always used for near 17 years of marriage. She's the governess. She's in charge of the home, if you will, on the practical level. So when things need to get organized, where that couch is going to go, you know what? Leslie's in charge of things like that. And she says, could you move this couch over here? And I'm like, hey, woman, get in your place. I'm not moving a couch for you. No, that isn't what comes out of my mouth. I say, where do you want the couch? Okay? In other words, there's a thing that I lead in, and there's other things that she takes the helmet, and I serve, which is why I wash dishes because her job is to keep an orderly home and I serve her in that. In other words, it's not that I just say, Hey, keep an orderly home. I say, how can I help you do what you are called to do? Okay. Now this is going to touch on some very sensitive issues in our culture, but that's our culture's issue, not God's. Okay. So I want to clarify that the fact that we are uncomfortable with some of these things is not God's fault. It's our fault. And the fact that our culture is so dead set against the kingdom of heaven is evidencing itself in the church, unfortunately, today. Now, I can't promise you that I can give you all answers to some of the things I'm going to bring up at the beginning here. In fact, it's not even what I'm going to talk about today. However, I want to stir the pots because I can just see God setting me up for a message on this in the very near future. The governors. Now, I'm going to read through some things that are said in Scripture. And here we are in Titus 2. Now, Titus 2 isn't just dealing with women. It's dealing with men, older men, and younger men as well, as well as older women and younger women. And it's under the context of doctrine. In other words, there's a pattern or there's a way that men and women are supposed to be within the body of Christ. It's it's really fascinating, so I want to read it to you. But speak thou the things which become sound doctrine. In other words, they are appropriate to sound doctrine. That the aged men be sober, and that isn't just talking about not having alcohol, even though it sure would definitely include it, it's talking about they're sharp. They're always present. They're not doddering old fools. They're sober, they're grave, they're temperate, they're sound in faith and charity and patience. The aged women, likewise, that they be in behaviors becomes holiness. Not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things. That they may teach the young women. Now listen to what the young women have. Now this is where we're going to start pushing on some things that it takes the manly stuff to begin to stand up here on a stage and actually say. All I'm going to do is read scripture. And it takes serious guts to say it. Here it comes. To be sober. To love their husbands. To love their children. Okay, you're thinking, that's not that bad. To be discreet, chaste. Oh no. Keepers at home. Did I just read that? Out loud? Or did I just think it? Good, obedient to their own husbands. That's a tough one. That the word of God be not blasphemed. Now look at the last line there. This is what is appropriate to sound doctrine. There is a proper order to things. That the kingdom of heaven would be realized on earth. And there's your little short list that Paul is so graciously bestowing on us. Some of us have said, you know, if we could just delete that line. We'd be fine. We wouldn't have these cultural issues because you know how many men have taken... There's certain men that they only read certain scriptures in the Bible, and they're the scriptures I'm about to read to you. They're very unlearned in the rest of scripture, but they hang out on these because it seems to give them a position of authority over their wives. Okay, We have to be watchful of how we handle these. and the reason we are so sensitized is because there has been an abuse in Christianity and amongst men However, there's also been an abuse in and amongst women to discard and to turn a blind eye to say, since the men have abused this, we are not responsible to obey the word of God. You obey the word of God. That is your priority. Women and men. You submit to God. That is our job. What God says is right. So this is after that in Titus 2. Okay? It goes through and it talks about young men. And it goes into detail about that. And then this is the conclusion to Titus 2, which is a summary of the whole thing. And it says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. In other words, you live this way. This is the way that I am saying the church should function. The older men, the younger men. The older women, the younger women. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts We should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. So what was just listed above is defined here as being sober, righteous, and godly. And that's to be living this way in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority, Let no man despise thee. So look at these last lines here. These things speak. What's he talking about? Well, the list he just gave. These things, Titus. Be bold. Speak this. And rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. Why would any man despise thee for speaking these things? I think we know. Okay, now I'm going to stir the pot a little more. Okay? Some of you are way too comfortable. Now, this is just a collection of scriptures that I just sort of cobbled together for your enjoyment this morning. I will therefore that the younger women marry, bear children, guide the house, give none occasion to the adversary to speak reproachfully. Now Correct me if I'm wrong, but when you read Paul, and of course we have Peter's voice thrown in here as well, don't you get the sense that they are a little chauvinistic? in their attitude, like they're not really sensitive to women. I would like to propose that that is a grid that we are taking to the word of God. It is not actual. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to make us uncomfortable by reading what it says straightforwardly in scripture. And by the way, it isn't one scripture. Over and over and over again, it says these things. The fact that we don't see them is because we don't want to see them. I will therefore that the younger women marry, bear children, guide the house, give none occasion to the adversary to speak reproachfully. Thank you, Paul. Let your women keep silence in the churches. Oh, great. Paul, why do you need to say that? For it is not permitted unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as it is fit in the Lord. And then here we have Peter adding his little contribution. No, I guess Paul first. Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. Likewise, you wives, be in subjection to your own husbands. What? Why is this necessary? Why why do they keep going on about this? If it was one scripture, we could throw it out. Or we could at least try and justify it and say, well, contextually, we don't know exactly what to do with this. However, this is a statement that is reiterated over and over and over again. Now, I'm not going to leave you hanging here. Okay, I have a reason for bringing this up, and it's not just to make you uncomfortable. It's to make a simple point here. God makes a clear statement to us. What are we supposed to do in response to Scripture? We're supposed to obey it. Who's right and who's wrong? Is your social sensibilities, are they the right thing? Are they the guide in this culture? Or is God the guide in this culture? Your social sensibilities deserve no attention when it comes to the bar of heaven. If you come to heaven and to God with your social sensibilities as your reasoning point you will be held in scorn. You bring the word of God to bear upon your own soul and upon this world around you. We live in accordance with the word. Now, I want you to be very watchful, especially the men in here, with what we're looking at here. Because this is in accordance with sound doctrine. Doctrine being the manner in which we reveal the kingdom the manner in which we live out, the manner in which we apprehend the God of the universe and are overtaken and become his vessels. How do we do that? How do we bring about his end? Because his end is not that women are silent. It's not his end. His goal is to make sure that women don't speak. That isn't what God's after. There is something that God is desiring to showcase in and through his church. And to do that, he needs us to follow him. It's like, look very closely at this. Watch me. I am wanting to test, give a testimony to the world, to the nations, what my heart is, how I behave, how I function, how the human body is meant to be in this world. And you know that men represent something, and so do women. And so how we respond in the church is defining for the world how the kingdom of heaven works. And we have a part to play in that. And so if we are the ones that are supposed to speak, guess what? We're the ones that need to speak. And guess what? Most of us as guys aren't really that excited about that. And if we're the one that in this situation is supposed to remain silent, you know what? That could be the hardest thing on earth to do. But the point is, God is revealing something through our silence and through our willingness to speak. We must obey the word of God. There are certain things that are stated in the Word of God that are very uncomfortable. However, do not reason through them; believe them. Okay, God, I'm not exactly sure why, but you said it. Gulp. So it's f- true. Huh? What is? How's that going to look? Sure, don't hope anyone asks me a question about that. That's what famous pastor thought. Okay, now we're going to turn the corner on this one a little, but I have. A couple of things I wanted to mention first, and that is at the end in Ephesians 5, where it's talking about this, the role, you know, the position of a woman, the position of a man. It says, this is a great mystery. Well, what's a great mystery? It sounds like he's talking about a man and a woman. That's what it sounds like, a bride and a bridegroom. But this is a great mystery, says Paul. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. You see... What we are revealing in our homes is a revelation of Christ in his church. When we understand that, these things have context. When we don't, they just sound like legalistic rules. Like, why would we do that? You don't understand that you are a representation of the kingdom of heaven. You are demonstrating something here. You trust your God and he will utilize your body to demonstrate something to this earth. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife, even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. So he makes it clear this is about Christ and his church. Nevertheless, this applies to marriage. He's basically saying we are a small picture of Christ and his church. So the way we as men work and interact with our wives is meant to be a picture, follow me on this, of how Christ interacts with his bride. You want the highest standard imaginable in all the heavenlies for how a man is supposed to treat his wife? What did Jesus do? He took the lowest place, removed his outer garment, wrapped a towel around his waist, bent his knee, and washed his bride's feet. You know what he did? He suffered and he died to ensure that she was protected, she was well-fed, she was well-clothed. He gave up his life for her. That's love. He loved his bride. So men, when they take these things and attempt to warp them to their own ends or their own fleshly design, that is not Christian manhood. Christian manhood forsakes all comfort, stands in front and takes every blow and every bullet to preserve the life of the one that has been entrusted to his care. He will die for her. So what? can the wife do unto the man? She can learn to show a respect and an honor and to serve his role and his position. This is extremely difficult. You know, it's not that easy for a man to take a bullet either. It's not very easy for a man to march off to war and to be the one to say goodbye to everything and say, for hearth and home, I will lay down my life because I love my family, because I love my God. That's not easy either. It's not very easy when bullets are flying to keep marching forward. You know what? We're not called to ease and comfort. We're called to demonstrate the kingdom of heaven here. Who can find a virtuous woman? Her price is far above rubies. So what what happens when we read some of these scriptures is there's a tendency to seem devaluing to women. In fact, that's one of the arguments. Like Paul, you know, was a woman hater. Uh, No, and I think we need to realize that what is taking place here is a symbol of the church. Remember who the bride represents? The church. You know that it says, for God so loved the world, the church, the ones that would become the church, that he gave his only begotten son. The level of love and givenness and commitment to show value to the church, to the bride, is outrageous. For her price is far above rubies. It's worth the blood of God. The blood of Jesus Christ was shed to show value. We're not talking about something insignificant here. So anyone who thinks that the Bible is devaluing femininity, actually, it is increasing the stakes of saying, this. what this represents, what femininity represents, what the bride represents, is worth everything the groom has everything will be poured out to preserve it. So it's not a devaluation. It's the ultimate increase of value. The heart of her husband does safely trust in her so that he shall have no need of spoil. She will do him good and not evil all the days of her life. Now here's what I was getting at the whole time. So all that to get to this. Now, this is talking about the position, uh, the, the Peter line that we finished up just a few uh, moments ago. But let it be the hidden man of the heart. See, it's talking about not a, a woman not adorning herself on the outside as her means of showcasing her femininity, but starting with adorning the inside. And how does she adorn the inside? It says, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. So these are the terms I want to start to build on, because this message is for us guys, too. I know it's called feminine beauty. However, what the feminine beauty represents is the bride of Christ. And I want to just sort of allow all the guys in here to allow this to percolate a little. Who's the bride of Christ? Our wives? Our daughters? Our sisters? uh, All of us who believe. We are the ones who are supposed to be adorned in this manner. Okay, now it is talking specifically about a woman here, but a woman represents the church. So therefore, there is a parallel. Christ is as the man is, but the man as a believer is also the church, the bride, in his relationship to Jesus Christ. Okay? So all these things that a man is poking at, saying, hey, see, be silent. You know what God can say right back to you? Hey, buddy, be silent. Let me talk. Let me do my work. Show reverence for your head. See, the more you poke at those scriptures and get all excited about them, you need to realize, guys, they're directly towards you as well. Your application of them is a little different, but it's the bride of Christ. So a meek and quiet spirit, one that is harnessed. It's a spirit that is not volatile and controls everything around it, doesn't manipulate it, has no guile. It is meek, it is controlled, and it is quiet. Now, I'll just get into it and you'll see this. Silent that the groom may speak. Okay, remember how I said this is appropriate for doctrine. There is a revelation of the kingdom of heaven. Look at Jesus. Jesus received all those scriptures that we just went through. He was asked to be silent by his father. Do not speak, son, your own words, but only the words that I give you. Do not do what you would want to do. Only do what I'm doing. What? Do you think Jesus was complaining about chauvinism? You know, in in the father in heaven? It's like, how rude is that? He submitted to it. And through... The challenge and the difficulty and the suffering of this, he learned obedience to give a testimony of the great grace of God in and through man. Now, Jesus was God, which is why he did it perfectly. However, he limited himself to function as we ought to function, which is wholly dependent. Our mouths, our spiritual mouths, are supposed to be silenced. We don't have a say in the matter. I don't don't like that scripture, God. Silence. You bend your knee and you say, God, you are right. You show respect to your head. You defer to him. You know what you're doing, God. I yield to you. Well, that's vulnerable, isn't it? I mean, God will take advantage of you, won't he? Who is your God? You need to trust your groom. You need to trust that your master, your king and commander, Jesus Christ demonstrated his love for you and that he died for you and it says that he ever lives to make intercession for you and he will save you to the uttermost you must trust this god and so i know you have a lot to say you have a lot of critiquing you want to do to the word of god you know most of the scriptures i just went at the top of our critique list i don't think that's for today silence church of jesus christ before the living god he is right You remain in a humble position before him, men and women. And you say, you speak, God. This mouth is only available to you. I will not speak my own words. I yield to you. You take this tongue and you speak. Believe thou, this is Jesus talking, believe thou not that I am in the Father and the Father in me. The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwells in me, he does the works. This is a picture of something. This is a demonstration of the kingdom of heaven that Jesus was showing. And he says, what you've seen in me, do. This is the model. Follow me. And he calls us his bride. What does that mean? Well, our value is far above rubies. However, what does it mean? You see, there's a great mystery that is woven into the fabric of all this. And that is that Christ is our head. And we are to submit to him as his body. We are his body. It's what it actually said in one of the scriptures earlier when it was talking about a man and a woman. That the woman's body becomes the man's. Of course, you can just see the abuse that flows out of this in our culture. Because we have men in the body of Christ that are ruled by the flesh instead of the spirit. To realize that if they've been entrusted with the body of their wife, you know what they'll do? They'll give up their life to preserve it. They'll give up their life to do whatever it takes to protect it, to adorn it, to nurture it, to care for it. That's what it means. It doesn't mean to take it for your own fleshly indulgence. Becoming the bride, the governess. We have a body. And you know who it belongs to? Uh, Jesus. It says that he purchased it with his blood. Your body. Belongs to Jesus. You know, if Jesus doesn't have your body, you know that your body doesn't function as it ought to function? If you were to look at it as a great estate, a house, you have weeds growing all over the place. You're in charge. You're like the master of the estate. You're not supposed to be the master of the estate. And because of that, the flesh or the principle of sin has rulership over your house. And so it's fallen into disrepair. It doesn't look and it doesn't function as it ought to function. Something's wrong with it. And so, we are the master of the house, we're the head of the house, and we're not supposed to be. What Christianity does is it removes us from the position of head and turns us into, guys, brace yourself for this one, the governess. It turns us into the bride. It turns us into the one who submits. It turns us into the silent one, if you will, the one of a meek and quiet spirit. And we say, Jesus... You take what you purchase with your blood. You be the head of this house. You be the head of this house. Okay, now that terminology, if you listen closely, is going to sound an awful like the terminology that's thrown around, head of household. Well, who's the head of the household? The man. Oh, you don't say that today. How rude. It's totally insensitive, politically incorrect. Where do we get these ideas? I know they've been abused. Let's get back to truth in the kingdom of heaven. Let's be motivated and ruled by love and the spirit of God so that women are not taken advantage of. Is the church of Jesus Christ taken advantage of by their head? Are we, when we are subjected to our head, Jesus Christ, does he abuse us? Does he inflict unnecessary suffering upon us? Does he misuse us and mistreat us? Absolutely not. He cares for us. He loves us. He gives us every good and perfect gift. He does what is necessary to nurture our spiritual life and our growth, to preserve us and protect us. So becoming the bride, the governess. How many of you guys want to be the governess of your home? Now, we we wouldn't call it that. This just happens to be this message is the feminine stuff. So I want you to realize, guys, when you start looking out at femininity and saying, yeah, feminine, you know, they submit. Well, God looks at you and says, feminine, you submit. You have a meek and quiet spirit and you, he'll call you the governess if need be to put you in your place. You're the governess. You know, I actually like the term. I think it's noble. I think it's dignified. A little awkward calling myself a governess within my home, but that means I'm the one that is supposed to be a keeper of the home. Jesus is the ruler of this home and I am the keeper. I'm a keeper at home. Whoa! You know, politically incorrect that is to say that about a woman, but I just said that about a man. You guys are fine with that. All of you are like, yeah, you could be a keeper at home. That's what we are. As Christians, as the bride, we are the keeper of the home. Jesus is the ruler of this home. Whatever he asks, we do. We submit to it. However, we are the ones that do the daily work of telling our hands to obey the Spirit of God and to follow the leading of the the Word of God. We are the ones that tell these eyes, no, don't look there. Look here. We are the ones that command our heart into obedience, our mind, to dwell on things above and not dwell on things beneath, to think on things that are pure, lovely, of good report, beautiful. We are the ones that are the keepers, to bring order, beauty, and truth to this environment. Keepers at home. That they may teach the young women to be keepers at home. Now you notice I hollowed this scripture out just to get to the point, but that, that I didn't. I'm not changing any of the grammar to do it. It's just summarizing. That they may teach the young women to be keepers at home. That the word of God be not blasphemed. The cultivator of order, beauty, truth in the house of God. The privilege of the Levite. One of the things that we look at with Ellerslie is it's, and I've said this to a lot of the students. It's merely a picture of our home brought here. Some people don't like that. They don't, maybe not, don't want to live in our home. I love our home. Our home is marked by beauty, order, and truth. I love it. It's a great environment. We protect the things that are sacred in our home. And you know who's the champion of this first and foremost? No, I protect it. I'm a a big fan of it. Leslie is the governess at our home. And Leslie's femininity and her feminine sense of beauty and order and truth is what causes our home to be so extraordinary. Anyone who's been in our home knows it's beautiful. Well, I want you to follow this. You know, some of us have messy homes, you know, piles of laundry sitting here. I'm not saying that laundry can't find its way to the floor of the looty home. Believe me, it can get there quicker than anything. However, it also needs to be picked up and put in its proper place. You see, in our home, there's a place for everything. and That's a key thing. The same thing with truth. In this home, there's a place for everything. Every thought that comes, you know, there's a place to put it, to either take it in and absorb it and allow it to be meditated upon because it's truth, or to stick it in the dungeon of your soul and to take it captive to the will of Christ Jesus. There's a place for everything. But there must be order and beauty, and that's the responsibility of none other than you. You were supposed to be the keeper at home, to maintain an order, a beauty, a decorum of life that brings a sweet fragrance to this world, of this kingdom that we represent. So the privilege of the Levite. I just wanted to read you a scripture, and this is in 1 Chronicles. What you see is the last words of David, the Levites were told that they were to be numbered. And they were given a very specific task. And you know what that task was? The Levites were out of the 12 tribes of Israel. They were the tribe that was chosen to minister in the house of God, to deal with the house of God. So it's called all throughout the Old Testament, if you do a little search on house of God or house of the Lord, it's just all over the place in the Old Testament. There's literally a house. God has a house. Isn't that a funny thought? How does he keep his house? How he keeps his house is how you should keep your house both your physical house and your spiritual house. There's an order to it. God doesn't have a dirty pair of underwear sitting in the Holy of Holies, strewn off to the side. He doesn't do that. There is an order. There is a manner in which he keeps his house. You should keep your house that way too. And so listen to this. For by the last words of David, the Levites were numbered from 20 years old and above because their office was to wait on the sons of Aaron, who was the high priest, For the service of the house of the Lord, in the courts and in the chambers and in the purifying of all holy things and the work of the service of the house of God, both for the showbread and for the fine flour for meat offering and for the unleavened cakes and for that which is baked in the pan. Someone needs to be doing these things. Someone needs to be tending to the issues of the house, not just any house, the house of God. Who was assigned this? The Levites. The Levites were assigned to take care of the house. Well, do we look at that as chauvinistic? How dare God and then David tell the Levites to do this? That's diminishing to them. This is not diminishing. This is caring for the house of Almighty God. And by the way, what I'm reading right now is your job description spiritually. So the moment you begin to look down on this, you're looking down on your calling. This is what you're called to right here. You need to deal with those unleavened cakes. And for that which is baked in the pan, don't forget about that, and for that which is fried, very important, and for all manner of measure and size, and to stand every morning to, to thank and praise the Lord, and likewise at evening, and to offer all burnt sacrifices unto the Lord on the Sabbaths, and the new moons, and on the set feast by number, according to the order commanded unto them continually before the Lord and that they should keep the charge of the tabernacle of the congregation and the charge of the holy place and the charge of the sons of Aaron, their brethren, in the service of the house of the Lord. You see, we represent something. We represent the bride. He's the groom. And the way we heed our task and our job description reveals the kingdom of heaven to this earth. We balk at our job description and say, hey, hey, that's that's beneath me we lose the privilege of doing it. This is a privilege above all other privileges to serve and represent and bear the name of Jesus Christ in this world. In the Song of Solomon, the groom marries this woman who's known in in typical texts as the Shulamite woman. But as Charles Spurgeon says, he says, that's an unhappy translation. Because what she is doing, she's taking on the feminine form Of the name of Solomon. His name is Solimol, and her name is Solima. She's the female of his name. That's us. Whether you want to be it or not, guys, you're Solima. You're the feminine of the Prince of Peace, the King of Peace. You are his wife, the bride that is being made ready. That's us. keepers of the house of God. Now I've already given this away. I've already built to it. So it, there's no shock in me bringing it up to the screen. I always like there to be a shock. So sort of like, Oh, that's we're keepers of the house of God. See, when we read that keepers at home, I, I know how you feel about it. I actually still feel a little uncomfortable. My social sensibilities have run deep on this issue. Okay. This is a hard issue. And so even as I'm preparing this message, I'm squirming. I'm thinking, Oh, mother's day. What a great gift to all the mothers. Let's bring up these scriptures. However, what I want to do is I want to dignify what this is. I want to raise it high and I want to show the extreme value of these things, not to diminish it and say, look, look how lowly that is. No, the opposite. We serve this. We make room for this and say, how can we help? How can we help reveal the kingdom of heaven? Women say, what is my role? What is my part? I want to do it. Men say, what is my part? How can I help? How can I help my wife do it? How can I help my daughters do it? How can I help my sons do it? How can I do it right? So that the kingdom of heaven is not profaned in our generation, but that this world would see a clear picture of our God. Keepers of the house of God, know you not that you are the temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you? So all that stuff in the Old Testament, the house of God, the house of the Lord, don't you realize that you now are the house of the Lord? How did he maintain his house? How did he keep his house? Who ministered in his house? It's the Levites. The ones taking care of the cakes and the fried foods and the showbread, making sure it was swept clean. They're the ones. That's us. That's our job is to make sure that the beauty, the order, and the truth is maintained in the temple, in the house of the Lord, which is us, but not just us as individuals, us corporately. You know, there's some sweeping that needs to do in the body of Christ. There's some money changers' tables that might need to be turned over. However, our job is to be zealous for the house of God, for it is meant to be a house of prayer for all nations. This is meant to be set apart as a place of petition, as a place of prayer, as a place of sacrifice. This is meant to be God's dominion, God's kingdom, which is a king's domain, the domain of the king. It's a human body, and it's the body of Christ at large. If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy, for the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. What? Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which you have of God, and you are not your own? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them and will be their God and they shall be my people. The extraordinary beauty of the governess. Remember how I said what Leslie's name means? It means peaceful meadow. It's really neat because there's Two things over and over and over again that are mentioned that seem to be the outflow of not just the blessing of what was purchased on the cross, but the blessing of God. We could call it the Abrahamic blessing. It's just the timeless blessing that God has bestowed upon the sons and daughters of faith. Those that will believe, they receive something. What is that? The components of blessing. It's grace and peace. This is actually very exciting because when you, I I gave a message a couple weeks ago called Manly, almighty grace. Because grace is such a feminine term. It is a feminine word. Uh, charis in the Greek is feminine. So it's sort of hard to argue that it's not feminine. However, we have this idea that it's just a hug of God. It's the enabling power of God. It literally picks a man up out of the mud, cleans him off, sets his life straight and aright so he can live triumphantly. It's more than a conqueror for his king. That's manly. Well, I said, Leslie is a peaceful meadow. A peaceful meadow is like the symbol of hospitality. It's those that are welcoming and that wash the feet of the saints, okay? And so we have something here in this blessing of something very manly and something very beautiful and feminine, okay? So the part I want to focus on is the part I didn't focus on two weeks ago, which is peace. Now, I know this is going to sound like we're putting our foot on the brake. We're going 90 miles an hour down the road. You're like, okay, Eric, you've opened a huge can of worms here. And then I'm going to stick on the brakes and start talking about peace. What I want to talk about is what your expectation is of how this house is supposed to function. First of all, grace is the power of God to completely alter and renovate this house. This house that you live in is sort of like a stable. You know, you have uh, the lowing of oxen sheep and the mooing of cows in there. And you have the smell of them too. And the Son of God is born afresh within a stable known as us. But He must clean this stable. He must make it His palace. And so He does the renovation work that is needed. It's called regeneration. And He sanctifies us. And He changes us through and through. Not only does He purge us and cleanse us of all our sin, but then He sticks our feet on a rock and helps us to live in a manner that is heavenly. In a manner that Brings an applause to the king. But then, he removes all enemy faction within our existence. You know, all those things that have held us down. You know, the flesh. And I'm not talking about the flesh today very much. But that flesh that is always burping and scratching his way around in our life and controlling us. We want to do this, but we can't. We want to serve God, but there's always this problem in us. And it's controlling our life. It's called the principle of sin. You know that Jesus dealt with that. You know the enemy and that enemy voice, that enemy voice of accusation, of condemnation? Do you know that Jesus dealt with that? You know that you do not need to be subjected to these things anymore? You know fear, anxiety? Some of you are literally enslaved to it. You don't want to be. But you have panic attacks. You're literally ruled by fear and anxiety. You know that you don't need to be? You know lust? You don't need to be in the chains of lust and the cyclical pattern of defeat. All your enemies are dealt with by the blood of Jesus Christ. You must know this. You know what it brings about? It brings about a peace, a removal of all enemy faction. Now, peace has two angles to it. One is, it's the incoming prince of it. And when he comes in, guess what? Everything else is removed that is opposite of him. But also, it is the removal of everything that is opposite of him. Everything is gone. That's why the nation of Israel was at peace. Why? Because all the hostile nations within it, the 31 hostile nations, were dealt with, they were under the feet of Joshua. Yeshua, Jesus. And that's what happens in our life. By grace, we are saved. And what does it bring about? Peace. A peace that passes all understanding. Do you taste that? Do you know that in your inner life? Because you are a keeper of this home. And as a keeper of a home, you better know what that blessing is. You better know what Jesus Christ has done for you so that you can take it. So we're going to talk about peace. Grace, the enabling power of God to bring about a new rule, a new life, and a new creation within the life of men. Peace, the cheerful, calm, and rest of heaven. The Abrahamic blessing in a nutshell. May the gracious, enabling power of God be activated in your life and become your very life. And may the cheerful calm of this heavenly victory dawn upon your soul and fill your life with the buoyant blessing of inner placidity. It's a good Eric word, work. Placidity, none of you know what it means possibly. Placid. Calm. When a lake is calm and placid and clear, do you know that it reflects perfectly the glories of the heavenlies? You see, when a lake is ruffled, you know, the winds are blowing upon it and it's responding to the winds and it has a white foam on it, you know that you don't see the heavens in it? You're supposed to reveal the heavenlies. You're supposed to be marked by this cheerful calm. No matter what's happening, it doesn't matter how thunderous the rains, it doesn't matter how blustery the winds, you remain calm, supernaturally calm in the midst of storm. Peace, in the Hebrew, shalom, in the Greek, irene, which is the effects of a freed kingdom no longer beneath the thumb of the despot, the quiet and calm of a once battle-torn land rescued by a benevolent power, the silencing of fighting words in exchange for words of love and harmony. The deeper spiritual meaning, because that's just the Greek definition. It means the soul of man rescued and made cheerful and new. Now, I'm going to emphasize something. Cheerful. Most of us would understand that we're made new. But cheerful? How does that get put into this? Oh, We're going to see how that gets put into it. It's very exciting. Cheerful! So when I start talking about how the fact that I'm the happiest man in this room, you're going to know why. Because I know this truth. I get excited about this. Cheerful! Peace in the New Testament has nothing to do with externals, but has everything to do with the inner life of a man saved by the heroic love and grace of Jesus Christ. Peace is the once enslaved and troubled soul made free, buoyant with gladness and filled to overflowing with an unsinkable heavenly smile pressed upon his soul. Peace is an inner rest, a calm, an abiding in a new life and sustenance, an In inward contentment, a cheerful stillness amidst the winds, waves, and blustery coldness of life. Jesus Christ brings us the Abrahamic blessing, which has two parts. The power of God to transform and enable, as well as the peace of God to calm and make our souls smile with gladness. So look at First Chronicles 22.9. Behold, a son shall be born to thee, who shall be a man of rest. Who is he talking to? This is God talking. Who is he talking to? David. A man shall be born, a son shall be born to thee, who shall be a man of rest. Now, of course, this is talking about Jesus. But in the natural, it's called the Christophany. This is a picture of Jesus, even though it's talking to men. We see Jesus in this. A man of rest will be born of the seed of David. A man of rest. Isn't that a fascinating statement? A man of rest? And I will give him rest from all his enemies round about. For his name shall be Solomon. He has rest from all his enemies. Therefore, he's given the name Solomon, the prince of peace, the man of rest, the man who is victorious, who has literal peace in his land. And I will give peace and quietness unto Israel in his days. Whose days are we in? Who's the king of Israel in our day? He happens to be known as Solomon, Jesus Christ, the man of rest. He has brought about a rest to the people of God. Who built the temple of God? Who built the house of God? The man of rest. Okay, he's building a temple, and he wants you to keep it. But he wants you to realize that there is to be peace and quietness in the days of his reign in that house and the days of his reign by the way will not end oh that's good mark the perfect man and behold the upright for the end of that man is peace thou will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusts in thee this is just a natural byproduct of trust god stays our soul and he gives us rest he gives us peace he gives us calm For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, that you may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. It's a a promise, by the way, that the peace of God which passes all understanding. You can't even comprehend this because the world around you is falling apart. However, the peace of God is holding you. Those things which you have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do, says Paul, and the God of peace shall be with you. Well, it's about time that we as Christians know the God of peace and we know the peace of God because it's meant to be a part of our home. Our home is meant to be governed, By the peace of God. Which means the enemy does not have access. We are at rest from all our enemies. Are you? Are you at rest from all your enemies? Because that is the issue here. You are the silent dependent one upon your man of rest. He's the protector. You are the keeper. He's done the work. You implement it in your life through faith. Through believing. Through saying... He's done it. And if that anxiety knocks on the door, you say, "Mm, you're not welcome here anymore. You see, you're a keeper of this home. You take that thought captive to the will of Christ Jesus. If something moves in to this home that does not belong there, what do you do with it as the keeper? You get it out. You clean it. Brooms, spiritual brooms are for that very thing. A calmer of storms, both the storms at sea and the storms of the soul. He makes the storms a calm. I love this scripture. He makes the storms a calm so that the waves thereof are still. And guess what? He fulfilled that scripture in the New Testament. But that's his nature. Do you have storms in your life? Are the waves filling up your boat to the point where you're reaching your extremity point? Because he makes the storms a calm. This is what he does. Will you let him do that for you? And he arose, this is speaking of Jesus in the New Testament, and rebuked the wind and said unto the sea, Peace, be still. And what happened? What happens when your man of rest is in the boat with you and you allow him to rise up? Well, the wind ceased and there was a great calm. This is the fruition Of God at large in your life. There's grace and there's peace. If you do not have the grace, the enabling power of God, well, then by golly, it's a promise. Go after it. The fact that you're even hearing this message is the gracious work of God upon you to say, Take it, take it, let me rescue you. But don't just let Him rescue you and then set you back down in the middle of hostile territory all clean and forgiven. Let him rescue you and let him turn hightail your enemy and get them out of your house. And peace. Not just the power, but the cheerful, calm, confidence, and quiet of God. Listen to this. This is Paul. Over and 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 over. I don't know if you counted those. It's somewhere around 10. Grace be unto you and Peace. He doesn't just say grace be unto you from God, our father. He says the same thing over and over and over and over. Okay, I won't do it again. Grace be unto you and peace from God, our father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be to you and peace from God, our father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be to you and peace from God, the father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be to you and peace from God, the father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be unto you and peace. You guys getting the idea? Grace be unto you and peace. Grace be unto you and peace. Oh, we finally got done with those. In other words, Paul is deliberately giving the blessing. What's he giving? He's giving the blessing that we're talking about here. He's saying, grace be unto you and peace. Not just grace, which most people have totally redefined grace to be merely the hug of God and the acceptance of God in our misery. God doesn't plan on changing our misery. God doesn't plan on saving us from our sin. He just forgives us of our sin because he understands we're wretches. He knows we're wretches, but he loves us too much to leave us that way. That's grace. Grace literally picks us up out of that mud. But then he doesn't just pick us up out of the mud, wash us clean and set our feet on a rock. He has decimated all of the enemy. He has dealt them the blow and they cannot rise. Do you believe it? Do you know this to be true? This is the life of the bride, the dependent one. She has the strong, warlike arm of her groom fighting for her. The battles she can't fight herself. She is known as the weaker vessel. Oh, I know that would get me. I'm glad that was in the context of the body of Christ as opposed to just women. The weaker vessel. Who is that weaker vessel? That's the bride. Who's the strong vessel? That's our head. Our head. He did it. He's the strong one, the man of rest, and we lean upon his strong right arm. Calm. It means damama in the Hebrew and galen in the Greek, which is stillness, silence, and cheerful rest. I love that. It's cheerful rest, a calm. There's a cheer in it. It's not just the absence of emotion. There is an emotion, and it's cheerful. Calm. Life Life is so good. God is so good. I love my family. He's given me health. He's given me strength. He's given me hope. I have everything in him. This is the meditation of a Christian day in, day out. And what happens to the face? Watch this. The lips rise. There's a smile. that does, It starts in the soul and then it presses itself. Even if you've always frowned your entire life, suddenly it, it pushes it upwards. It changes your disposition. You shine to this outside world. Why? Because of peace. Peace is a calm. There's all sorts of dimensions to peace. So we're going to start unraveling what peace is. This is like an unpacking of a big suitcase called peace. So says peace on it. We're opening it up and one of the dimensions is calm. Deeper spiritual meaning of calm. Listen to this. This is really neat. The word primarily signifies calmness or cheerfulness. It's from the root gal or from galeo. To smile is also derived from this. To smile is derived from the word gal. Hence, the calm of the sea, the smiling ocean being a favorite metaphor of the poets. But calm means something far more than mere calming of external elements like storms, winds, and waves. It denotes a calming of the inner storms, a quieting of an inner bluster, and a silencing of an inner tempest. Calm in the deeper sense is a smiling soul. A heart made cheerful by the intimate encounter with the bridegroom. The blessed rest of the heart. A grace-shaped smile that proves the presence of Christ amidst the storm. A calm soul is one grafted into the life of the vine. One conquered and rescued by the king of kings. And one lovingly made dependent upon the chief shepherd. All may be a bluster and a boil outside, but inside there is the crackle of the fire of God on the hearth, accompanied by the warmth and quieting presence of the almighty victor, Jesus Christ our Lord. To be calm is to be at rest in the king's life. Okay, have you ever been in the house? I know you have. Huge storm outside. Winds, rains, thunder, lightning, but then inside there's the crackle of warmth and you have that strength. If you're a child, the strength of your Your dad standing there and he's reading you a book. And he's perfectly calm. The thunder and the lightning. And your dad's perfectly calm. That's our life. It doesn't matter what's happening. We look at our dad, our father in heaven. And he's saying, you ready for the next chapter? Yeah. And he brings a calm. And suddenly this storm becomes something beautiful. And some of you know what this is like. You actually love storms because you know that you're in the safety and the confines of your family and your house that's that's our life as christians yes storms will come but we don't need to fear them we have a house governed by god and we have him with the crackle and the warmth of his calmness and peace inside of it the hebrew bondservant one of circumcised ears okay i'm just going to go over this real quick i think i have a scripture here we could read exodus 21 If thou buy a Hebrew servant, six years he shall serve, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. And if the servant shall plainly say, I love my master, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him unto the judges, he shall bring him to the door or under the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall serve him forever. Okay, so a servant who is set free, because he loves his master, returns to him and says, I want to serve you forever. So the master takes him and pierces his ear. Why would he pierce his ear? What does that have to do with anything? Because the ear is symbolic of hearing, of listening. We're talking about peace. And we're talking about the silent one. Remember? Remember the context of this? We're talking about feminine beauty. We're talking about the body of Christ. We're talking about the church, the one who is dependent. Instead of just talking, we listen. We are those that are bondservants and say, I have an ear for my master. What he says, I will hear. I'm not just chattering away. I'm listening. You listen to his word. You listen to his heart. You know him, and this is the attribute of the bride. The bond servant. In the Greek, it's doulos, which means a slave, a bondman, one given up to another's will. The deeper spiritual meaning. One bonded to Christ out of love and affection. One enslaved to the awesome power of love. One given wholly to its mastery over heart, mind, soul, and strength. One set free from the chains and punishments of sin by the blood of Christ, who has now returned, ravished with love, to pay his rescuer homage and worship. One wholly given to the person of Christ, his Lord, Master, King, Ruler, Bridegroom, and Friend. A bondservant is one of circumcised ears pierced with the all of the spirit, eager and able to hear his master's voice and ready and attentive to his every command. In the New Testament, a bondservant's life is one owned and operated by the spirit of Almighty God. A circumcised ear. You guys heard the term circumcision. Circumcision was the sign of covenant in the Old Testament, which, without going into any details of what circumcision was, for those of you that know, you'll understand what I mean, it is the removal of flesh. In the New Testament, the flesh is at enmity with God's agenda. It's at odds with it. It's against it. And so what the Christian must do, and see, in the New Testament, we don't circumcise the body. Our heart is circumcised. But what that means is that the flesh, that controlling power of sin, is cut off. And we are given to a new leader, a new man, to control us, Jesus Christ. Our old allegiance in marriage to our previous marriage partner, the law of sin and death, is annulled through the death of Christ, which we shared Him 2,000 years ago. And we are severed because of that death to enter into a new covenant, a new relationship where that old life, that old covenant is broken off. The flesh is removed from our life. And now we serve a new master, the spirit. Well, guess what? Every part of our body has like a shell of flesh around it. And one of the hardest things for us to do is hear the word of God because we have fleshly ears. We want to hear what we want to hear. We want someone to tell us what will appease us, what will bring comfort to our life. What is one of circumcised ear? It's one whose flesh is removed so that he can hear the clear word of God. He can hear it. Hearken, O daughter, and consider and incline thine ear. Forget also thine own people in thy father's house. So shall the king greatly desire thy beauty. For he is thy Lord, and worship thou him. This is a symbol of a bride. And what does that bride have? She has an ear for her lover. An ear, okay? This isn't an accident. The bondservant is motivated by love. The bride here in Psalm 45, which is an incredible parallel with uh, Song of Solomon even, is an amazing picture of one submitted with an ear inclined unto her master. Incline your ear and come unto me. Here and your soul shall live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. What are we commanded to do? To incline our ear. To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Behold, their ear is uncircumcised. The flesh is still over their ear. He can't talk with them. And they cannot hear. Behold, the word of the Lord is unto them a reproach. They have no delight in it. Well, you remember those scriptures that I read in the very beginning? This was merely a test. In other words, there are certain scriptures that we literally do not have ears to hear. Let's just acknowledge it, okay? There's certain ones it's like we can read other scriptures and submit to it and say, God, you are right. And there's other ones where we're like, I don't, I don't think that's correct. Something's wrong there. Do we have an ear for our master that is circumcised, where the flesh is removed and we have the spirit voice within us saying, yes, you're right, God. Anything in me that, that falters at this is wrong. Anything in me that tries to correct you is wrong. I submit. And one of them, I just put this in for a fascination point. And one of them smote the servant of the high priest. This is when Jesus is being arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so Peter strikes out, because uh, he's in a blur, he's been sleeping, he's not attuned with the Spirit of God. He cuts off Malchus' right ear, or the, the servant of the high priest, and cut off his right ear. And Jesus answered and said, suffer you thus far. And he touched his ear and healed him. The reason I put this in, I just thought it was fascinating, because Jesus heals ears. Okay, just as a symbol here. He touches our right ear and heals it. Most of us have a chopped off right ear. And we need to have Jesus touch it. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his bondservants. There's that term again. The one of pierced ear. And the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated by the angel to his bondservant, John. Revelation, the book of Revelation, starts out with this statement. It's to one who has an ear to hear what the Spirit says to the church. So then look. He that has an ear, let him hear. Well, all of us have ears, don't we? It says, he that has an ear, let him hear. What's he talking about? He that is a bondservant. He that has a pierced ear. Is your ear dedicated to the living God? Is it? Because this is the position of the bride. We have a pierced right ear. We submit, and we allow His words to be our words. We wait for Him to speak, and then we speak. We wait for Him to do, and then we do. We do only that which He is doing. We speak that which He is speaking. We are submitted unto Him. We are in subjection unto the head. What the Spirit says unto the church is, To him that overcomes will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Matthew, this is Jesus talking. He that has ears to hear let him hear. Who has ears to hear? Let him hear, says Jesus. And again, if any man have ears to hear, let him hear. We all have ears to hear. No, we don't all have circumcised ears. In the Hebrew culture, remember the Levites? And I said, you're a Levite. The priests were selected out of the Levites. And those that were selected as as priests were brought before the high priest Aaron. A ram was cut open. And the high priest dipped his finger in the blood of the ram. So this is symbolic of Jesus' blood and the high priest being Jesus. And what did the priest do? Submitted his right ear. And it was smeared with blood. He also submitted his right thumb and his right big toe. The right side is the side of control, of dominion, of authority, of war, all these things. And God says, I need your right. If you're going to work in my temple, I must have that ear. Do you have an ear consecrated unto your king, given to him? Or do you look at Scripture and filter it through your own opinion, through your own philosophy? Are you a child that when God speaks, you say, yes, Lord? When I speak to my children, I say, go clean your room, they don't come back to me, at least they're not supposed to, because it has happened, and ask questions why, you know, and give appeals of you know why they would rather go out and play right now, and they don't like my timetable because they were going to have fun. In other words, when Dad speaks... It's binding. Now, they can make an appeal, but it better be a good one. Because daddy is making a statement to them. And that's the way we are as children. We have pierced ears. So we say, yes, Lord. It's a pre-decided yes, Lord. Before you even read the scripture, you say, I agree with you, God. And he says, you haven't even read it yet. I know, but I do agree. That's what a circumcised ear is. The holy recipe for spiritual listening. Okay, now, this is like spiritual listening. Most of you are like, how do you know what God wants how do you follow God? How does this work? Okay, the holy recipe for spiritual listening. We have Damam, Rafa, Chasha, Kava, Chul, Perameno, Apekdekomai, Procedrio, and Prosdekomai. Okay, let's go through each one of these because this is the, the recipe for spiritual listening. Damam, to be silent, still, wait upon the Most High, rest in His arms, be quieted by His grace. Do you see any parallels with what we started with today? Remember how uncomfortable that was? We were talking about this is appropriate for doctrine. We are revealing the kingdom of heaven. Well, this is part of the recipe for listening to God. Daman, to be silent, still, wait upon the Most High, rest in His arms, be quieted by His grace. Remember, meek and quiet spirit. Stand in awe and sin not. Commune with your own heart upon your bed and be still. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. My soul, wait thou only upon God, for my expectation is from him. Rafa, which means to refrain from labor, be quiet, let go of your burden, sink down into his almighty life. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the heathen and I will be exalted in the earth. Chasha, which means to make calm, quiet, bring to peace and a cheerful state of rest. He makes the storm a calm so that the waves thereof are still. And he arose and rebuked the wind and said unto the sea, Peace be still, and the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Kava, to wait, to look for, to hope, to expect, to wait, to eagerly expect. Lead me in thy truth and teach me, for thou art the God of my salvation. On thee do I wait all the day. Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen thine heart. Wait, I say on the Lord. I wait for the Lord, my soul doth wait, and in his word do I hope. The Lord is good unto them that wait for him, to the soul that seeks him. Therefore, turn thou to thy God, keep mercy and judgment, and wait on thy God continually. Chul, endure difficulties with longing, strength, and hope. Rest in the Lord, and wait patiently for him. Perameno to wait for. And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, you have heard of me. Apekdecomai, to patiently and assiduously wait for. But if we hope for what we see not, then do we with patience, Wait for it. Procedrio, to sit near, to attend assiduously to be in attendance upon, to not quit one's side. Do you not know that they which minister about holy things live of the things of the temple, and they which wait at the altar are partakers with the altar? Prosdecomai, to give access to oneself, to admit, to accept, not reject a thing offered, to expect fulfillment of a promise. So we just went through this massive list, and I'm going to tie all this together. And what it is, is to be still, to be calm, to wait for, to wait upon, to not reject. When something comes, you heed it. Why? Because you have an ear for it. You can hear it. You can attest to the fact that that is your God. You are waiting upon him because you are silent and you are still. Stillness has to be one of the most difficult things for any human to cultivate. But what a meek and quiet spirit is, is a still spirit. It is a spirit that is ready to listen. It is a spirit that is ready to serve. It is a spirit that does not reject, but it gives access to admit and to accept, not reject the thing offered, to expect the fulfillment of a promise. Now look at where this word is used in the New Testament. It's in the story of Simeon. It's also indirectly a part of the story of Anna, but I'm just giving the story of Simeon here. And when eight days were accomplished for the circumcising of the child, which was Which His his name was called Jesus, which was so named to the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were accomplished, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And the same man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. This is what he was doing. He was waiting, silent, in the temple. You see a parallel here. And when Jesus came, he recognized him. Why? Because he was waiting. He was still. He was constant in his position. And the Holy Ghost was upon him, and it was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord Christ. And he came by the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him after the custom of the law, then he took him up in his arms and blessed God. Could you imagine this to be said of you in relationship to Jesus, the Word of God? When the word of God comes into your life that you've been expecting, you're like asking God, teach me, train me. And the word of God comes, guess what? It's a baby. That's a little awkward. You're expecting a Messiah. Instead, it's a baby. What does he do? Then he took him up in his arms and blessed God. You know, there's truth that's going to come to you. And it's not going to come in the package that you're expecting. But it's God. And those that wait upon God, that have an ear for God, and that are still before God and silent before God, saying, you're right, God. Whatever way you choose to do this, you're right. And if it comes as a baby, that's a little awkward. The Messiah is fragile, is a baby. Then he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now let thou, servant, thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation. Joseph of Maramathea was another man who demonstrated the same concept, an honorable counselor. And what did he do? Which also waited for the kingdom of God. He was waiting. And when it came, he recognized that in that dead Messiah was the actual Messiah. He saw it. He came and went in boldly unto Pilate and craved the body of Jesus. You know what? Simeon saw him as a baby. And received him. Joseph of Arimathea saw a dead man and he said, That's my Messiah. They could see it because they were waiting upon it. They were silent before their God to say, You speak. You speak. Whatever form it comes in, I heed. Remember the scriptures we started with? That's an awkward form, aren't they? That isn't the form we want. We don't want Jesus, our Messiah, as a baby, we don't want him as a dead man. This is the wrong script. Who gave us this script? That isn't the one God would do, is it? What God says is right. What he says in his word is correct. Your social sensibilities need to be thrown out in the trash. You follow your God no matter how uncomfortable it may be. The recipe in summary. So all those words tied into one little paragraph here. Damon. Be silent still, wait upon the Most High, rest in his arms, be quieted by his grace. Imagine that this is feminine beauty. This is the definition of how the bride is to demonstrate that feminine dependence and silence and stillness before her groom. This is it. To be silent still, wait upon the most high, rest in his arms, be quieted by his grace. And Rafa, refrain from labor, let go of your burden sink down into his almighty life. Chasha, be made calm by his spirit and his love. Accept the blessing of peace into your soul and let the bridegroom paint a cheerful smile upon your heart. Kava, wait upon your master's word. Look for him, hope in him, and eagerly expect him to be all he has promised you he will be. Chul, endure life's difficulties with longing, strength, and hope, and through it all, parameno and act. Pecadecomai, patiently and assiduously wait for him to prove his love, faithfulness, and goodness and ultimately demonstrate his glory unto this earth. And procedrio, sit near him. Attend him with great care. Never quit his side. Prosdekomai, and give him complete access to your life. Admit him into your most intimate chamber. Accept all that he offers unto you and never waver in your confidence that he is fully able to perform that which he has promised. The art of abiding... The deepest expression of love and devotion. Listen to this last little part here. The position of the silent. Abiding. You abide in Jesus Christ and that is your secret to this house working. Abiding is a term of house, by the way. You abide in a house. We're supposed to abide in Jesus. He is our house. We abide in Jesus and then he comes in and becomes the master of our house. And he abides in us. And that's the secret to your house being kept properly. So this is, right here, our little great secret for being the bride. We must abide. And that's our deepest expression of love and devotion. It's not just duty. As women, my encouragement to you isn't to hear this message and then to have a weighed, weighed down sense of duty. It's like, oh boy, I need to heed the scriptures. This is love and devotion unto Jesus Christ first and foremost. Unto your husbands. You know what your husbands are supposed to do? To show the love of Jesus to you. The gentleness, the grace of Jesus unto you. Then suddenly the kingdom of heaven is demonstrated on earth and in your home. Abiding is the act of a bondservant. One who has lovingly and trustingly placed his entire life at the disposal of his master's whim and will. Abiding is the act of Sabbath rest. It is giving up of all self-labor in order to receive the gracious work of God within one's very soul. You try and kill the flesh. You know, you have that problem of principle of sin, you try and kill it. You can't. You see, we are laboring to try and be correct with God. But the secret is to allow him to labor in us. That means we learn to rest in the man of rest. We learn to no longer try and accomplish that which we can't try. And we show him honor by doing it. So Sabbath rest is the act of abiding. We say, man of rest, you do your work. You do your work and I will rest in you. Abiding is the art of stillness, receiving the blessing of Abraham and entering into the cheerful, smiling calm of Christ's life, ceasing from self-work and self-glory to allow the Spirit of God to be the life, the vigor and the impetus within your earthly body, quieting the inner man's voice so that the voice of one far greater can be heard. Abiding is the art of listening. It is the consecration of the right ear of the priest and the circumcision with the all of the Spirit. It is the moment-by-moment communion with the king, attentively waiting for his whispers of love, his whispers of caution, and his whispers of command. Abiding is the art of unbroken communion. It's meant to be constant, always and without interruption. By the way, I just want to emphasize this. Christianity is not supposed to be a roller coaster where sometimes you're close to God and sometimes you're far away from God. No, and then you have your season close again. It's supposed to be constant communion. Constant. That's God's intent. I'm not supposed to be periodically married to my wife, periodically abiding in the looty home, and then other times carousing around. I'm supposed to remain. I'm supposed to protect and be present. My children are supposed to grow up around me. My wife is to daily hear my love sonnets. I'm supposed to abide. Welcome to Christianity. It's meant to be constant always and without interruption, a praying without ceasing, a love without pause, a selflessness without intermittent spurts of selfishness, a listening ear that is always attuned and a right thumb smeared with blood that is always prepared to act out the wish of the master. Abiding is the art of obedience. A bondservant's love is only proved genuine through his instant response and obedience to the command of the master. For a branch to bear fruit, it must never hinder or attempt to stop the formation of fruit And likewise, abiding in Christ demands a constant and ready-yieldedness to his forward movement in our life, no matter the difficulty it might bring. Abiding is the ultimate act of love and devotion. It is the purest form of adoration in that it absolutely trusts, absolutely yields, absolutely cherishes, and absolutely obeys. The stilled and silenced soul, like stilled and silenced waters, is the only soul capable of reflecting the glories of the heavenlies the stilled and silenced soul is the only soul capable of hearing the whispers of God. And the stilled and silenced soul is the only one who will recognize the daily visitations of the groom for it is the only one ravished and moved by the love of the spirit. Stilled and silenced, meek and quiet. You see a parallel? This is us, all of us. And so this isn't a message just to the women. To try and make a point. This is me attempting to speak what God is laying on my heart with great delicacy, mind you, so that we don't trip over what this message could trip us up with, and to make a clear statement that we are all keepers at home. We are all, whether we call it or not this, governesses of this life. We are the bride. And we are to represent, in that feminine way, a dependence and a leaning upon the strong right arm of our groom. And we treat him as if, in fact, he actually is our head. We do. And he, when he speaks, he speaks for us. He gives language, and we follow in that language. He gives action, and we follow in that action. We learn dependence upon him we learn to submit and to serve and to give unto him this is the job of the levite this is the job of one who keeps the home i wanted to finish with this scripture which i finished with i don't know how many weeks ago it was but some of you will recognize it you see solomon has finished building the temple the house of god has been completed they bring in the Ark of Covenant. The very presence of God is brought in. Which, by the way, this is a parallel with our life. The house is built correctly. Rebuilt by Jesus Christ. Jesus is both a picture of Solomon and Zerubbabel. Solomon built the temple. Zerubbabel rebuilt the temple. And Jesus has rebuilt the temple. Which was his body. He did it in three days. And then we become that body. There, thusly, we become the temple of God. And the Ark of Covenant, the very power and life of God, is brought in. And then it says, then the house was filled with a cloud. The house. What house? Not just way back in ancient Israel. Your house, filled with a cloud of glory. It's the very presence of God. Even the house of the Lord, so that the priests, who are they? That's you! Could not stand to minister by reason of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord had filled the house of God. You build this house right, you function correctly as a Levite, and you are the one privileged to fall down before the living God because the cloud of glory moves in. Don't complain about your position. Cherish it. We get the privilege of being keepers of the house. Okay, so just to say this scripture, and I'm going to take the word priest, and I'm going to move it off to the side, and I'm going to stick a little parenthetical in here so you can really see this. Then the house was filled with a cloud, even the house of the Lord, so that those that were its keepers, the priests, could not stand to minister by reason of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord had filled the house of God. So, who wants to be a keeper of the home? I do! Please! May I have the privilege of being a keeper of the home! So do not denigrate what the word of God says. Because of our ridiculous social sensitivities, let's have spiritual eyes, spiritual ears, spiritual minds, and spiritual hearts to appropriate and to understand once again the beauty and the triumph of what King Jesus has accomplished. We are privileged and blood-bought to be keepers of the home to be still and silenced before our head so that he's the one speaking and it's not us. This is an incredible picture of our king. And may we enjoy it, thrive in it, delight in it, respect it, and bring glory to his name in our obedience to it.
0: Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellersley Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns, cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.